0: we're gonna have a picture of a lighthouse come up. Here it is. So I put a picture of a lighthouse on the slide for us to see. It's an incredible photograph, isn't it? Can you see it from there okay? It's incredible. There's this amazing display of power. I want you to look at the water. I want you to look at the waves that are crashing around that lighthouse. It is so strong, it is so powerful. This photo also displays, it shows to us um, security. Look at the strength of the lighthouse. Look at how incredibly strong that it is. And it's not moving and it's not shaking. It's also displaying vulnerability to us. Do you see the man in the small little doorway in the middle? He doesn't look so safe. he doesn't look scared. In reality, he is. This is a real, a real photograph. It was taken in 1989, and this man was literally in a life-threatening storm. And at this moment, um, he just got in and closed the door right before the waves crashed around him and could have killed him. He survived, he got helicoptered out. He actually came out because he thought that this helicopter, the photography helicopter, he thought it was his rescue plane, and it wasn't. So this is crazy. Now, this man is in such a dramatic situation. The waves had crashed out. They had blasted out the windows in, in the bottom of the lighthouse, and the living quarters were completely destroyed. The TV was going every which way, and the coffee pot was smashed. And this wasn't a safe, good situation at all. And yet, this lighthouse is still standing today. You can go to the northwest coast of France, And if you take a photography helicopter, I bet you could go and get a similar picture without the storm and without the man, but there's the lighthouse still standing. The security and the strength and the stability of that lighthouse was not actually dependent. Um, It wasn't controlled by the chaos and the disaster of those crazy waves at all. And we can kind of see, if we look at that, we can maybe see some parallels to our lives. We know that life brings all kinds of storms. Isn't that a typical analogy? There's these storms in life, and maybe some of us have gone through storms or are going through them. We will go through some. And we all need assurance, we need confidence, that the thing that we have put our hope in is sure. It's stable and it's strong like that lighthouse. When life is raging like a storm, just like that, we can be left with a question, if I put my hope in God... Will he be faithful? Is he secure? Is he faithful and sure? So we start opening up the book of Exodus with that question. We have some covenants, some promises that God gave to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. And we start reading Exodus with the question, Will God be faithful? Will he be sure? Does he love his people? And so we're going to look at that question. We're going to go through these these next two chapters, chapter 1, chapter 2. And we are going to see that God's faithfulness... Is not based on changing circumstances. It's not based on changing circumstances. So this is one big idea, but we're going to look at it in two different aspects. We're going to start by looking at God's faithfulness, and then we're going to turn it over and we're going to look at circumstances that change, and then we're going to apply that to our lives. God's faithfulness is not based on our changing circumstances. So let's start by looking at his faithfulness. So as we've gone through our study, we've seen verses 1 to 7 sets the stage. The Israelites are in Egypt. They have large families. God's promised to bless them. And then right in verse 8, you're starting up to this really great, beautiful story. And things crash apart in verse 8. There's these devastating three stories, one after another, of just increasing tragedy. It's a surprising turn of events. It's not what you think when you read Exodus 1.1. Exodus 1.8, this is where we are. There's a new pharaoh, and he is very threatened by these Israelite people. They have such huge numbers. And so what does pharaoh do? Well, we read that he decides to deal shrewdly with these people. And so he puts his plan into action. Plan A, we read, forced labor. Verse 11 to 14 covers this. The Israelites, they were enslaved, they were oppressed, they were worked ruthlessly, But what happens? The more they're oppressed, the more they multiply. It's the exact opposite of Pharaoh's goal. Saturday morning, who here loves to watch cartoons? Or when they were kids, they did. You roll out of bed. Yes, oh, we still do. Awesome. Among friends. You roll out of bed, and now that it's fall, you probably have your flannel PJs on. And you go out of bed, you make your cup of coffee, and you grab your remote control. You start flicking through the channels. And you find the cartoons because it's Saturday morning, and there's Looney Tunes, and Wiley Coyote and Roadrunner are on the TV. It's a great start to the weekend, and we know we know the story of Wiley Coyote and Roadrunner. It does not matter what episode you watch, Wiley Coyote always gets blown up, and Roadrunner always escapes. And so here we are. Here's here's Coyote. He's sent away, and he's ordered his dynamite, and he gets his bow and his arrow, and he sees he sees Roadrunner, and he lets his Bow and arrow go, but the thing that goes is actually the bow. And he's left holding his dynamite arrow and it explodes in him. And there's the scene of him black and sooty and smoky. And it blew up in his face. Pharaoh's plan A totally blows up in his face. So Coyote goes back to the drawing board, right? What can I do now to get Roadrunner? So forced labor didn't work. Pharaoh thinks of a new plan B. Let's control the population a different way let's get these midwives to kill the baby boys as they're being born. Well, what happens when the midwives are commanded to do this horrible thing? They refuse, and the population increases again. So, here we go. Coyote, he's standing on this cliff, and he has his rock that he has attached to a tree across the road, and he swings it down like a pendulum, hoping to crush Roadrunner as he's going across the road. But Roadrunner's quick, gets away, and the Rock crashes into the tree, and mm, the tree comes, crashes on Coyote's head, down he goes, off the cliff. Plan blows up in his face again, and Roadrunner, here are the midwives and the babies, they are protected. So Coyote goes back to the drawing board, and Pharaoh thinks, okay, post-abortion, post-delivery abortion here, it's not working, it's not getting rid of these babies, so at least I can control my own people. So, I'm going to conscript every single Egyptian person to, when they see a, a baby, when they see a young boy that is Israelite, I want them to take these babies and put them in the Nile and drown them. One goal this population cannot grow. Coyote had one goal I must get Roadrunner. But what happens? The plan completely blows up again in his face. Did you get the irony when you read verse 5 to 10? Pharaoh's own daughter, not just some random person in his kingdom, his own daughter, rebels against the king, takes a baby who was supposed to be drowned in the Nile, and takes this baby out of the Nile and adopts him as her very own son. There's Roadrunner, or Roadrunner, there's Coyote with his dynamite stick blown up and sizzling from his last failed plan. Pharaoh cannot, cannot outsmart and outpower and outmaneuver God in this. God has his sight set on the Israelites, and Pharaoh has his sight set against them, and God is always winning. In each one of these episodes that sk- seems more and more crazy, God is more and more and more in control. We've read two chapters in the book of Exodus, and we know exactly how the story is gonna end, don't we? We've had these foreshadows, these little hints along the way from the outset. Pharaoh is completely doomed to lose. He's no match for God, and all his plans fail, and all his plans completely blow up in his face. The book of Exodus is written so that the people will know who the Lord is, that they will know Yahweh, that they will know who God is. And as we read through the Psalms, which were written after this event, when the psalmist is writing and looking at creation and how huge and magnificent it is, and Looking at different nations and rulers around the world, the psalmist will write things like Who is like our God? Absolutely no one and nothing anywhere is comparable to how great our God is. And we're starting to see that here in Exodus chapter 1 and 2. God's character is totally on display, He is powerful, in control. Sovereign and nothing, not even the most powerful ruler on the face of the earth, Pharaoh himself, can change that, can challenge it. And we say, Oh, okay, coyote, would you just give up? You're just going to get hurt in the end. It's almost actually kind of comical how repetitive this scene is and how it plays over and over and over in our mind. But then we kind of need to think about the Israelites. So we see God and we just think, Ha, he's, he's a hero and he's strong and Pharaoh's a fool. But the Israelites, this is not at all a funny story when we look at life and these situations through their lens, through their perspective at all. And so let's look at the circumstances. God, we have seen him faithful, but let's look at these circumstances. The Israelites here are not at all experiencing any thrill of knowing the faithfulness and the faithful display of God's power and his control and his love towards them. They're not experiencing that. And this is not our Sunday school flanagraph story. is are really difficult chapters in the Bible that we're looking at. Many of the Israelites lived their entire lives under this kind of oppression and this kind of genocide. We have forced labor. And, yep, the Israelites were enslaved and they were oppressed. And the more they were oppressed, the more they grew. And so we want to cheer. And yet what happens to the Israelites? They're oppressed even harder It's not a celebration for them necessarily that their population is growing. They are feeling the weight of the labor. It says that their lives were made bitter. They were ruthlessly worked. What about the ethical dilemma of the midwives? Here they have a job they can provide for their families. And they go to work, and their boss, the king, I don't know if he was their boss, but there's this government decree, when you go to work, I need you to kill the Hebrew baby boys. Well, their job is to bring life into the world, not to kill. But if they decide to go against the king, their lives are at stake. They might get fired, they might get killed. Yeah, they might not want to kill and be immoral, but they have it to make a choice. It's a really hard choice that has very serious consequences for them personally. And then think about living in this kind of fear, under this kind of oppression, under this kind of genocide. What happened in the next scene when Pharaoh commands his own people to find the boys and drown them in the Nile. They find the boys, and they actually do drown them in the Nile. It's really quite horrific. Babies were taken from the grafts of their moms, and they were drowned. And there was one mom, we read about her in chapter 2. She was so afraid of this happening. She was so fearful that her baby would get taken from her grasp and drowned in the Nile River, that she decided to make a boat and put the little basket in the water, and put her precious baby into this basket? How is that basket safer than my arms? Into the river that has some crocodiles probably, and some reeds, and some currents? How is this a good option for safety for the child that I love? This is not at all a reasonable situation that she's in. But the Israelites weren't in a reasonable situation They were in a terrifying, paralyzing, fear kind of existence for 80 years. Day after day, month after month, year after year. These are really bad circumstances. So some of us aren't even 80 years old yet, so we have no understanding of how long that is. But I think every single one of us in this room have kind of an idea of life being difficult. So I was uh, in North India a couple years ago, and I had the privilege of meeting a lady who told me about her community. She lived, she lived up in, in North India in a small village, and in her community, um, they had become Christians. And Christians in North India are very much persecuted, and so she, they always lived in fear of their lives. And one day, there was a rebel group that came through her town, And she and her people started to run and try and escape, and she did get away. uh, But she watched and witnessed her friends, her family, being killed right before her eyes. And you think in that moment, God, these are your people who love you and you love them. But where's your faithfulness in that moment when an entire community is burnt to the ground and people are killed? Where's your faithfulness, God? This is happening. Maybe not over 80 years, but it's happening in that time, and it's really hard. But it doesn't have to be global, it can be closer to home. I know of a family right now who is going through some difficulty. She's maybe in her 50s, 60s, and she was recently diagnosed with terminal cancer. She's a couple months to live, but her son's getting married in a year, and so she wants to be there for the wedding. So she's opted for chemo, which can't cure her, but it can hopefully buy her some time, so she's super sick now. She's lost all her hair. And a couple weeks ago, guys, this is such a sad story. She gets a phone call from the police. And they tell her that her husband was hit by a car and he died. Like, we ache when we hear stories like that. And we are asking, God, we know you are loving and we know you're good, but are you faithful? Because this circumstance, it was bad at the beginning when you got the cancer diagnosis, but it's really, really crushingly difficult right now. But it doesn't even have to be super dramatic things like, like cancer and like death. I think every one of us in our normal lives, day to day to day to day, we go through ups, we go through downs, and we, we have difficult moments along our life path. Some of us have chronic illness and we have pain. Some of us have family conflicts that haven't resolved for years, and Thanksgiving's coming up, and you're really actually not looking forward to getting together and cooking the turkey because you have to deal with so-and-so and so-and-so. And it goes on and on. And God, are you faithful? Are you faithful here? Some of us, our kids have been rebelling. and We can't control them. And there's an election coming up. And we can't control who's going to be our new leaders. And so it feels like chaos around us. And some of us have been infertile for years. And we wonder where God's faithfulness is to us. And some of us are under crushing, chronic loneliness. And Where is God's faithfulness? Your marriage is breaking up or you are in a dead-end job and you can't see a way out and you can't bear to be where you are. So we ask in our normal lives, where's God's faithfulness? We have these endless cycles of difficulty and discouragement and feeling like maybe God has abandoned us. Maybe we're asking, where is he? These events can leave us really groaning. We read like the Israelites groaned. We groan under the weight of our normal life stuff. But I think if we limit the evidence of God's love for us, if we limit the evidence of God's faithfulness to our day-to-day circumstances, we probably could conclude that God has unfortunately forgotten because life is full of tragedy. It is. We read this story and we see that Scripture recognizes that God's people experience pain. This is the real story in chapter 1 and 2. God's people experience pain. We are allowed to grieve when life is painful. We are allowed to cry out to him. We don't have to just put rosy glasses on and say it's okay. We can feel the weight of this. But as we do that, and in the midst of our distress, let's not forget how these chapters end. Because we have chapter 2, verse 24 and 25 which I think might be some of the very most beautiful verses in the Bible. There's lots of beautiful verses, but these ones are wonderful. Had God abandoned his promise and had God abandoned his people in the midst of 80 years of distress and oppression and genocide? No. God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant. God looked on them, and God was concerned for them. That is beautiful. God is paving a way, the the beginning of Exodus is God paving a way to bring a deliverer, to raise up someone who will rescue them. And as we keep studying, we are going to see that Moses becomes this leader, and we are going to see that Moses comes and brings the people, delivers them out from this oppression through the Red Sea. This event is called the Exodus. And as you read throughout the rest of the Old Testament, you are going to see time after time after time again the exodus referred to, the event that we are starting to study into. As you read through the rest of the Old Testament after that, they're always going to refer back to this, back to this event that we are studying. And when they go through difficult times, which the Israelite people do, they're going to filter every single one of their life events through this rescue. And they are going to say, where is God, where is God, is he faithful, and they're going to remember the exodus, the display of God's faithfulness, the evidence of his faithfulness to them. So you see, God was faithful, he was committed, but the commitment just wasn't visible in those moments. The exodus is really the greatest event that happens in the Old Testament, I think, but we have a greater event We don't live in the Old Testament times. We live in the New Testament times. We live after Jesus. And so we have an even greater event that we can look back to. Proof of God's faithfulness on a scale like no other. God demonstrated his faithfulness to his people, his faithfulness to his promise through Jesus Christ, through his death and through his resurrection. This is the great rescue event the greatest rescue event that we can look back on when our life circumstances show very little evidence of God's faithful love towards us. So how do we know? If we want to ask the Bible, how do we know God's faithfulness? How do we see his love? Well, John is going to write in 1 John chapter 4, 9-10. to He's going to write and tell us. He's going to say, this is how God showed his love. This is it. Are you listening? He sent his only son, one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Paul is gonna write to the Romans in a letter and he's gonna say, God demonstrated his love in this way. This is the demonstration of God's love. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And the church has been and will be forever proclaiming that this, this demonstration, Jesus' death and resurrection for us, is absolutely evidence of God's faithfulness and God's faithful love towards his people. Right? We sing about it in old, old hymns how great the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only Son to make a wretch his treasure. This is the vastness of God's love. God demonstrates his love in the cross, not in your life circumstances. So here we have the Israelites, and they look back to the exodus for that demonstration and that assurance of God's faithfulness, and we look back to the cross for that assurance of God's faithfulness. So we're left with this question of where do we look? Where do I look? Where do you look? When circumstances are really good, And where do we look when circumstances are really bad? So it's fall, we're getting more rain. Let's say that you're driving to the mall and it is pouring rain and you're at the strip mall so there's no underground parking lot. And you are praying, Lord, it would just be awesome because I curled my hair today, I'm still wearing flip-flops because I want it to be summer and it would just be great to have the closest parking spot so I can just zip in and zip out and not get wet. And as you're coming through, you see this truck back out at the perfect spot and you quickly get in there and you think the Lord has been so faithful (laughs) but then a couple weeks later you go on a road trip with your family I don't know why you're going on a road trip in September October but you do and you're in the middle of nowhere no land with no mechanic shop and you get a flat tire and you've been planning this trip for a while so where's God's faithfulness There's no mechanic, and you don't know how to use the tools to get the tire fixed. Where's God's faithfulness? But you get home, and a couple weeks later, you get the raise. God is so faithful, so very faithful. But then this morning, you burnt the toast, and the dog peed on the floor, and you were late to Bible study, and so I'm just not sure if God is for me, and I don't know if he's very faithful right now. (laughs) Silly. This kind of thinking, when we, when we work it through, we see that this is wrong thinking. It, it's, it's foolish. It's quite silly, but we, we do this. We look at our evidences. We look at our life circumstances, and when we say that these are signs of God's absolute assurance of his faithfulness towards me. It's like a roller coaster, though, right? You kind of get dizzy when I'm telling the story. I got dizzy thinking about it. You're up. And God loves me, and he is faithful, and I have bad circumstances, and I'm down, and he is not faithful, and I'm not sure if he loves me. It's like you're a schoolgirl sitting at recess time with a daisy. You're pulling the petals off. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me, but honestly, if we look at our life circumstances to validate God's faithfulness, we will not find stability. We won't find assurance. We will be rather ill-equipped to deal with life's adversity and once adversity comes and comes and comes again knocking on our door, we might be very well tempted to turn our back on God. I'm not saying, so I need you to hear me, I'm not saying experiences are bad. I'm just saying they're a very bad foundation. We can't base our assurance of God's love for us on our circumstances. It seems to me that quite a lot of the, the hint of the survival of our faith is going to depend on how we view our circumstances and where we look to see God's evidence of His faithfulness for us. It's not shown in our life circumstances, it's shown in something so much greater the exchange of His own life for ours. So look to Jesus. If you want to know what God's love looks like, look to the cross. So I want to leave you with a couple thoughts, a couple questions that if you are here today and you have yet decide to follow Jesus, can I encourage you to think about who Jesus is and how very much he loves you? Can I encourage you to consider these chapters, consider the story of all of the scripture that says God is in control and God cares for his people and he is faithful to them. If you Follow anyone else or follow anything else. It's like putting your lot in with Wile Coyote. It is going to blow up in your face. So take some time as you're studying with us. Check the pages of scripture and think, who is Jesus? Who is God? Are they trustworthy? Can I trust them? I pray that you do. But if you're here and you do follow Jesus, but you feel a little bit dizzy from trusting your life circumstances to be the proof of God's love for you, If you worry about God being in control and maybe uh, you feel quite distant from his care and his concern right now, can I encourage you that you're in the right place? This is a lifelong battle for all of us who seek to follow God. It is a faith that is worked and grown and matured in the ordinary day-to-day ups and downs of our life. And day by day, ups and downs, we're going to We're going to grow. We're going to have some stable roots as we see that God's faithfulness is not in our circumstances. So that when really big storms come crashing on our doorstep, we're going to know where to look for God's faithful assurance towards us. It's going to be to the cross. We'll have trained ourselves to look to the cross. Look to the cross. Look to the love of Jesus there. Because here's what the Apostle Paul writes when he thinks about the love of Christ he says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, these are really bad circumstances. No, he says no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, or if I missed anything, he says, nothing else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The cross of Jesus assures us of God's never-failing faithfulness despite the rays you might get or the toast that you burn in the morning because God's faithfulness, it's not based on our life circumstances. So let me pray that we can learn to trust this. God, I am thankful for your word. And I am thankful for Exodus 1 and 2. I am thankful, God, that you see your people, that you hear the things that they're concerned about, that you look on them, that you are concerned for them. Lord, this is an encouragement for us that you were faithful to the Israelites, that you gave them the demonstration in the Exodus. We are so excited to learn more and more about how great that display of your faithfulness to them was. God, we have Christ, something so much better. And we are so thankful that the scripture records this so that we can look back again and again and again and find our assurance in it. Would you help us, God, to focus on that? Help us to know how to live in lives that are hard. Help us to have the energy to walk forward in it, but help us, Lord Jesus, to trust you, whether or not we see evidence, whether or not we feel the evidence, we can look to the cross We need your help in this, Lord, but would you grow us, each and every one of us, these ladies and myself, in the ordinary moments of life, to see you on the cross, Jesus, as the evidence, the great demonstration that this is love, so that we can have assurance for whatever comes in our futures. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for what you have done. In your name we pray, amen. Amen.